Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Beginning in the mid-20th century, an urban legend circulated through the United States. A teenage babysitter sat downstairs. The children she was watching were upstairs, fast asleep. Suddenly, the phone rang. Babysitter hung up, hoping the creepy call was just a prank. But then the phone rang again. <laughs> I'm upstairs with the children. You'd better come up. Terrified, the babysitter called the telephone operator and asked them to trace the call. A few moments passed, and the operator told the babysitter to run. The call was coming from inside the house. The babysitter sprinted out the front door. Just before she slammed it shut, she caught sight of a man lumbering down the stairs. A butcher's knife, stained red, glinted in his hand. She'd barely escaped the killer. But the children upstairs hadn't been as lucky. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode in a special three-part series on babysitters. For the next three weeks, we're diving into the history of babysitting in American culture. We'll explore how babysitters became the subjects of urban legends, slasher films, and real-life crimes. This week, we're discussing the beginnings of babysitting and the cultural backlash centered on teenage girls. We'll also cover the 1950 murder of Jeanette Christman. Some say the 13-year-old babysitter was killed by a family friend. Her tragic story is often cited as the inspiration for the bone-chilling legend, The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. Next week, we'll cover the evolution of the American babysitter and the disappearance of 15-year-old Evelyn Hartley. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. 
Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The urban legend of the babysitter and the man upstairs is believed to have originated in the mid-1900s. But this creepy tale didn't come out of nowhere. It was inspired by 20th century American culture, and maybe even one real-life crime. In the late 1940s, America was rapidly changing. World War II had recently come to an end. Men returned home from the battlefield to find their country and their homes much different from when they left. This was mostly because when hundreds of thousands of men were deployed, women filled their places in the workforce. Women finally had the opportunity to build their own careers and earn their own money. This led to a large-scale shift in American gender roles. It also had another more unexpected side effect. Women's entry into the workforce led to a babysitting boom. Parenting was still markedly inequitable, so even when married mothers worked full-time, their husbands rarely helped with household chores and childcare. Instead, they hired babysitters and nannies to pick up the slack. And these babysitters were often, of course, teenage girls. More than ever, childcare responsibilities were being handed down to children. With this came some cultural anxiety about whether or not adolescent girls could be trusted as childcare providers. The legend of the babysitter and the man upstairs may reflect this anxiety. On its surface, it's a story about a crazed killer. But beneath that, it could be a tale about how equipped teenage girls are to care for other people's kids. The legend's underlying message could be interpreted as babysitters being inadequate caretakers. It supports the fearful notion that while parents will sacrifice themselves to save their child, Babysitters will always protect themselves first. And so, a seed of doubt was planted. Teenage girls were turned into the scapegoat for a deluge of societal issues, including the perceived breakdown of traditional gender roles and the nuclear family. But in reality, these girls weren't nearly as conniving and untrustworthy as they were made out to be. More often than not, they were the victims. They were routinely underpaid and mistreated while on the job. And of course, some babysitters became the victims of terrifying crimes, one of which might have helped inspire that creepy urban legend. In March of 1950, in Columbia, Missouri, a 13-year-old girl named Jeanette Christman was working to pay off a new Easter suit. The outfit was gorgeous. The material was soft, the color deep maroon. But it came at a steep price. Mom! Yes, Janet? Mr. Romek needs someone to babysit tonight. I thought you wanted to go to the school dance. I did, but if I babysit, I'll finally have enough money to pay off my suit. That's true, but are you sure? Isn't their little boy a bit of a handful? Mr. Romack said Greg's calmed down since he turned three. He'll probably just sleep while I'm there. Plus, the Romacks have a piano, so I can practice. Well, all right. Is Mr. Romack coming to pick you up? Yep, he'll be here at seven. 
At 7 p.m. on March 18, 1950, Edward Romack arrived to pick Jeanette up. Mr. Romack was a middle-aged man with a good reputation. Jeanette's mother didn't think anything of allowing her daughter to hop in the car with him. But for Jeanette, the weather made the drive a little unsettling. Snow was common in Missouri, even in the spring. That night, the temperature hovered in the mid-20s Fahrenheit. Heavy wind blew rain and sleet across the windshield. By the time they arrived at the Romax home around 7.30, Jeanette was glad to get out of the car. The Romax large six-bedroom house was just west of the city limits. The area was more rural than Jeanette was used to, but Mr. Romack assured her she'd be perfectly safe. And on the off chance that an animal or another attacker came to the house, Mr. Romack wouldn't leave Jeanette unarmed. He taught the 13-year-old girl how to use his shotgun. If you hear any rustling, don't be afraid to let a shot off. Better safe than sorry. Okay. Keep the door locked. Don't open it for anyone you don't know. Yes, sir. And when you hear me and Mrs. Romack come home tonight, flip on the porch light, all right? Will do. Perfect. Greg's already sleeping. Just leave his little radio on, and he'll snore the whole time we're gone. At around 8 o'clock, Mr. and Mrs. Romack left to go play bridge with some friends. Jeanette locked the door behind them. She presumably checked on three-year-old Greg, who was fast asleep upstairs. Then she sat before the Romax piano. It was nicer than anything her parents could afford. The seat was plush, the keys pristine. She took out some sheet music and played. It's impossible to know exactly what happened inside the Romax house that evening. But it's likely that Jeanette continued playing the piano for a while. She might have stepped away to study or daydreamed about her new Easter suit. Then, around 10.30 p.m., she heard footsteps on the porch outside. Jeanette wondered if perhaps the Romax had come home early. She turned on the front porch light. We'll never know for sure who Jeanette saw standing outside. All that's certain is that five minutes later at 10.35 p.m., Officer Roy McCowan of the Columbia Police Department received a terrifying call. Through the phone, McCowan heard a young girl, presumably Jeanette, screaming. She begged the police to come quick. But before the girl could identify herself or give Officer McCowan her location, the call cut off. Unfortunately, the department was woefully understaffed that evening, and there was no one to actually trace the call. Police couldn't figure out where the girl was, so they couldn't do anything to help her. A full three hours later, at about 1.30 a.m., Mr. and Mrs. Romack pulled up outside their home. Hmm, that's odd. The porch light's already on. Maybe Jeanette saw us drive up the road. Maybe. Honey? Uh-huh? One of the windows is broken. What? And the front door's unlocked. Mr. and Mrs. Romack stepped inside, their stomachs in knots. They crossed into the sitting room and entered a living nightmare. Coming up, the Romack's peaceful home turns into a crime scene. Since the beginning of time, people have wanted to believe in an afterlife. Hi listeners, I'm Shelby Scott, 
In Mediums, a new Spotify original from Parcast, I take a closer look at the mortal lives of spiritualists who claim to communicate with the dead and the scientists who tried to debunk them. This eight-episode series looks at paranormal events proven to be hoaxes and those which have mystified even the world's greatest skeptics. Mixing history, mystery, and social psychology, Mediums asks how these self-proclaimed psychics pulled off the illusion of interacting with the dead, even under a microscope of criticism. Were they all simply peddling parlor tricks, or was there something truly paranormal going on? Break out your Ouija board, dust off your crystal ball, or light some candles, because Parcast is ready to reveal what's really known about the unknown. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Mediums, Summon new episodes every Wednesday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. On March 18, 1950, 13-year-old Jeanette Christman babysat for Mr. and Mrs. Edward Romack. The Romacks left their home just outside of Columbia, Missouri, to go play bridge. When they returned home at around 1.30 a.m., they found the porch light on, a window broken, and the front door unlocked. They went into the living room and found themselves face to face with a scene they'd never forget. Jeanette lay dead beside the piano. Her body was splayed out on the carpet, surrounded by a pool of blood. She'd been sexually assaulted. Her face was covered in scratches and small, circular puncture wounds. The cord of a clothing iron was wrapped around her neck. Oh my God, how did this... Uh, I don't... Edward, where's Greg? He was sleeping upstairs when we left. Mrs. Romack had tunnel vision. All she could think of was her three-year-old son. And thankfully, she found him upstairs, sound asleep, exactly as they'd left him. While she hugged her child, her husband called the police. I uh, hired a babysitter, Jeanette Christman. Something, something terrible happened. What happened, sir? Uh, I don't know. Around two o'clock in the morning, officers from the Boone County Sheriff's Department arrived at the Romack's home. They found evidence that Mr. and Mrs. Romack missed. Firstly, signs of a struggle stretched from the kitchen, where the Romack's phone was, into the living room. It not only showed that the teenager fought her attacker tooth and nail, but it also lent credence to the theory that the phone call Officer Roy McGowan received was in fact from Jeanette. Secondly, deputies determined that the puncture marks on Jeanette's face must have been made by some kind of a small, round instrument, possibly something metal. But these wounds didn't kill her. It was the cord which her attacker had used to asphyxiate her that ultimately led to her death. And that cord had been torn off an iron found inside the Romax home. Whoever did this knew where to find the iron. It was in a linen closet and the killer took it out. 
What are you saying? I'm not saying anything. I just think that whoever killed Jeanette knew their way around Mr. or Mrs. Romack's home. Strikes me as a little funny. I don't think there's anything funny about this. Strikes me as a little odd. But that wasn't the most distressing piece of information. Upon closer examination, the deputies realized that Jeanette's killer couldn't have entered through the broken window. A side table and some other furniture sat right beneath it, but nothing had been disturbed. In other words, the shattered window was a distraction. Whoever attacked Jeanette wanted police to think they'd broken in. Why would someone stage a break-in? Think about it. The killer knows their way around the house. Or so you think. So they probably know Jeanette too. I still don't get it. The killer doesn't want to get caught, obviously. They stage a break-in to hide how they actually entered. But why would they want to hide how they actually entered? Because their means of entry would reveal something about who they are. Okay. And what was the killer's means of entry? Simple. The front door. When Mr. and Mrs. Romack came home, it was unlocked. That means one of two things. Either the killer had a key, or Jeanette let them inside. Who would Jeanette let inside? Only someone she knew and trusted. So Jeanette knew her killer, and her killer knew the Romax home. That means... It doesn't mean anything yet. But it's pretty funny, isn't it? Yeah, pretty funny. Between themselves, the deputies already had a theory. They thought the crime was an inside job. They didn't say it out loud, but they had their suspicions centered on Edward Romack. However, the Boone County Sheriff, Glenn Powell, wasn't so quick to draw such a conclusion. He ordered deputies to take fingerprint samples from the scene and had Jeanette's body sent to a medical examiner. He also swabbed beneath Jeanette's fingernails and sent the samples to be tested. He hoped that in her fight with her killer, Jeanette had managed to scrape off some skin or blood that would lead to the murderer's arrest. Finally, Sheriff Powell called in a couple of bloodhounds, hoping the dogs might pick up on any strange smells in the Romax home. If the bloodhounds were to be trusted, they suggested two things. Firstly, there was an unusual scent in the home, one that didn't come from Edward Romack. Secondly, Jeanette's killer probably fled the house and escaped through the brush. Between the struggle inside the home and the run through the woods, the murderer had probably sustained some cuts and bruises, if not more serious injuries. But that was all authorities could figure out for the time being. It was likely nearing three o'clock in the morning, and they'd have to wait until the next day for results from the medical examiner or forensic scientists. The next morning, Columbia Police Chief Eugene Pond delivered news of the horrifying crime to the public. According to one recollection, he asked locals to be on the lookout for anyone donning suspicious scratch marks or exhibiting uncharacteristically odd behavior. But Sheriff Powell and his team were surprised to hear this announcement coming from the city's police chief. The crime had taken place just outside of Columbia's city limits, which meant it was under the jurisdiction of county officials. Technically, the police chief shouldn't have been so heavily involved in the investigation. It put Sheriff Powell in an awkward position. He didn't want to have to argue with the city police, but technically this was his case. 
He worried that splitting the work between two separate organizations could cause problems. And he was right. In the days after the crime, Police Chief Pond made a number of decisions that may have hindered the investigation. Among them, a city police officer was assigned to sit and watch the Romax home and wait for the killer to return. Even if Pond meant well, it seemed very, very unlikely that the murderer would go back to the scene of the crime. The officer wasted valuable hours sitting in the country house doing nothing. Worse yet, Chief Pond required officers to work 12-hour shifts. Again, he probably thought he was doing the right thing. In his mind, more hours may have meant more investigation. But really, excessively long shifts meant police were overtired, unproductive, and prone to making mistakes. Things got contentious quickly. While sheriff's deputies pored over the county's crime records, looking for the names of violent offenders, city police detained potential suspects. And they didn't always treat them nicely. A local carpenter was arrested on suspicion of the crime, and he claimed his interrogation went something like this. I'm gonna have to ask you to undress. What? We need to check your body for any scrapes or bruises. No way. Sounds like you got something to hide. Sounds like I've got rights. I don't have to strip for you. Where were you on the night of March 18th? None of your business. Answer me. Mm, screw you. According to the carpenter, the officer beat him while he was in police custody. Chief Eugene Pond contested this claim. Reportedly, the carpenter was simply asked to undress and no physical altercation ever took place. Whatever really happened, the whole affair scandalized Sheriff Glenn Powell. The Columbia Police Department shouldn't have been arresting suspects at all, let alone interrogating them. Their involvement was a distraction at best, and the carpenter's accusation made the entire investigation seem illegitimate. Nevertheless, the Columbia PD continued detaining suspects. They interviewed hundreds of people. One young man even confessed to the crime. It was later discovered that his statement had been falsified, and it's unclear why he admitted to the killing in the first place. The city police department wasn't making any headway, but neither were the sheriff and his deputies. The analysis of the fingerprints found at the Romax home didn't reveal anything. The swab taken from underneath Jeanette's fingernails didn't lead anywhere either. About a week had passed since Jeanette Chrisman's murder, and law enforcement wasn't any closer to finding answers. Desperate, they put out a $1,000 reward, the equivalent of over $11,000 today, for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Jeanette's killer. It was a hefty sum, and they hoped it was enough to make somebody talk. And as it turned out, someone was hiding something. But money wouldn't make them speak with police. Their conscience would. Coming up, Edward Romack spills his terrible secret. Now, back to the story. On March 18, 1950, 13-year-old Jeanette Chrisman was murdered while babysitting for Mr. and Mrs. Edward Romack. The Sheriff's Department processed the crime scene, but the investigation got tangled when local police, who didn't have jurisdiction over the case, arrested suspects. After a week, authorities hadn't made any headway in their investigations. 
So the Boone County Sheriff's Department offered a cash reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Jeanette's killer. But ultimately, the biggest breakthrough wouldn't have anything to do with this money. Mr. and Mrs. Edward Romack finally opened up to the police, and all their evidence pointed to one person. His name's Robert Mueller. I've known him for a while. We're friends, or we were friends. I, I don't know anymore. Just, he knew Jeanette. He'd said him things about her before. What kinds of things? He, um, he commented on her body, often. And he used to talk about going down near the high school and trying to pick up a younger girl. I, I never thought he was serious. Maybe you should have paid a little more attention. Yeah. Yeah, I should have. 27-year-old Robert Mueller was a friend of the Romax. Edward had known him since they were children. As adults, Mueller often played bridge with the couple. He'd been to their house on multiple occasions. He knew his way around the large six-bedroom home, and he certainly knew where to find the clothing iron. According to Mrs. Romack, he'd used it more than once. And that wasn't all Mrs. Romack had to add. He was creepy. I always felt uncomfortable around him. He made passes at me before. I always turned him down, but I got the feeling that, well, he wasn't very good at taking no for an answer, if you know what I mean. I told Edward that there was something wrong with him, but they'd been friends for so long. Anyway, he knew Jeanette was at our house that night. He'd actually asked her to babysit for him, but she'd already agreed to watch Greg. I I get the feeling that he was going to get what he wanted, no matter what it took, you know? Robert Mueller was the authorities' prime and only suspect. Everything added up. He had made creepy remarks about Jeanette. He knew she'd be at the Romex house on March 18th, and he knew where to find the iron. Perhaps most importantly, Jeanette knew him. If he knocked on the door, she probably would have unlocked it and let him inside. She wouldn't have even thought to grab Mr. Romack's shotgun. Police had enough to interrogate Mueller, but they wanted to catch him at a very specific time. According to Mr. Romack, Mueller almost always carried around a mechanical pencil. In any other context, this might have been just a strange quirk, but Jeanette had been found with small, circular puncture wounds all over her face. Deputies thought the injuries might have come from a round instrument, just like the tiny, tube-like end of a mechanical pencil. If they could catch Mueller with the makeshift weapon, they just might be able to make an arrest. If the sheriff's department and the local police had been working together, Robert Mueller's capture might have gone smoothly. Unfortunately, that isn't what happened. In May of 1950, Sheriff Glenn Powell reportedly took Robert Mueller, without a warrant, to a deputy's private residence for questioning. This was very unusual. Normally, a criminal interrogation, especially one pertaining to a murder, would take place at the police station, with the consent of the prosecuting attorney. But it was alleged that Powell didn't tell the attorney about Mueller's questioning. Powell was essentially circumventing the regular arrest process. It's unclear exactly why, but it's possibly because the prosecuting attorney had ties to the Columbia Police Department. The sheriff was already frustrated with local law enforcement. In all likelihood, 
He was trying to take back control over the case. But the sheriff didn't force Robert Mueller to the farmhouse. He came willingly, and he stayed up practically all night answering Powell's questions. Do you have an alibi for the night of March 18th? I already talked to Edward about this. I told him, I don't got an alibi, but I don't got any scratches either. What do you mean? Well, you guys said whoever did it would have some scratches. I don't got any, so I guess it couldn't have been me, huh? It's been almost two months. They could have healed by now. Didn't have any marks back in March either. Can you prove that? No. Can you prove me wrong? No. Robert Mueller couldn't establish his own innocence, but he knew police couldn't demonstrate his guilt. In his conversation with Sheriff Powell, he held all the power. Plus, as far as the available evidence shows, the mechanical pencil was a bust. Police might have proven Jeanette's injuries were inflicted with such an instrument, but they couldn't prove it was wielded by Robert Mueller. Sheriff Powell got desperate. He felt certain that he'd found his culprit, but his hunch wouldn't hold up in court. So the next morning, May 5th, Powell asked Mueller to take a polygraph test. Mueller was more than happy to oblige. Powell asked Mueller a series of questions about the crime. Mueller insisted he was completely innocent. And Mueller passed. The polygraph test showed that he was telling the truth. This might seem like proof of Mueller's innocence, but it's not. Lie detector tests are prone to mistakes, false positives, and false negatives. They're generally not accepted as evidence in court because they don't really measure lies. They just measure stress. So if Robert Mueller was a cool, calm, and collected liar, he would have had no problem passing the polygraph. Nevertheless, this felt like the final nail in the coffin for Sheriff Powell. He'd broken rules to interrogate and test Robert Mueller, and he had little to show for it. On May 24, 1950, he presented his evidence to a grand jury in the hopes they'd vote to indict Mueller. But the grand jury wasn't convinced. The evidence for Mueller's guilt was incomplete. Plus, the Columbia Police Department was still investigating other leads. Ultimately, the grand jury decided not to indict anyone. They issued a scathing rebuke of law enforcement's messy investigation. In the opinion of the grand jurors, much of the effort expended has been wasted and dissipated because of the failure to correlate the information available. Petty jealousies between the Boone County Sheriff's Department and the Columbia Police Department resulted in an almost complete lack of cooperation between the law enforcement agencies. The jury found there to be insufficient evidence to indict. With that, the investigation into 13-year-old Jeanette Chrisman's death was over. The case remained officially open, but no new discoveries were made. And soon after, Robert Mueller actually unsuccessfully tried to sue the Boone County Sheriff and a couple people in the office, alleging they had held and questioned him illegally. Really, this lawsuit served as an example of Robert Mueller's incredible arrogance. He'd gone with the sheriff willingly, perhaps because being interrogated at a farmhouse would draw less attention than going to the police station. As soon as he got pulled into the limelight, however, he flipped the script. He argued that officers never had probable cause to question him, even though the circumstantial evidence of his guilt was strong. In the end, the court ruled against Mueller. Shortly afterward, he joined the Air Force and left Columbia, Missouri. 
It could have been a coincidence, but it sure seemed like he was running from something. In more recent years, those close to the Chrismans and the Romax have spoken out about the crime. People who went to school with Jeanette say her death continues to haunt them. It hangs like a shadow over the once peaceful town of Columbia. And according to his nephew, Sheriff Glenn Powell remained convinced of Robert Mueller's guilt until the day that he died. He kept his eyes open for proof that could put Mueller behind bars. But in 2013, new evidence came to light. Maybe Sheriff Powell had been wrong. A journalist for the Columbia Tribune published an article that suggested an alternative suspect. Lois Vogt, a woman who lived in Columbia at the time of Jeanette's murder, had come face to face with someone she thought was the killer. Lois said she'd been babysitting when a sinister-looking man knocked on the door. She didn't let him in, but after Jeanette's death, she realized she might have been within feet of a murderer. Later on, Lois claimed she met the man in town. She even pointed him out to her husband, but no one listened to her. No one but the Columbia Tribune journalist. With this new information, the writer conducted an investigation of their own in 2013. 63 years after Jeanette's death. The man in question remains unnamed, but according to the journalist, he lived within a half mile of the Romax home. It would have been easy for him to commit the murder, then escape through the underbrush and back to his own house. The writer also said the man might have had a record of spousal abuse, which would suggest the possibility of more violent crimes. But when the journalist went to the Columbia Police Department to search for fingerprints and arrest records, there was nothing there. Somehow, over the years, the data from Jeanette Chrisman's murder had been lost. With that, any hope of solving Jeanette's murder seemingly vanished. We'll never know for sure who knocked on the Romex door on March 18th, 1950. However, with all the available evidence, I believe that 27-year-old Robert Mueller murdered Jeanette Chrisman. He was known to be aggressive and to make women uncomfortable. He'd reportedly expressed a perverse sexual interest in Jeanette. She would have trusted him enough to let him inside, and he knew the house well enough to find the iron cord that ultimately ended her life. I have to agree. It's certainly possible that Lois Vogt's story is true, but without more evidence or even the name of the suspect, it's hard to believe. Robert Mueller checks all the boxes. With no clear solution, Jeanette's murder haunts not just Columbia, but everyone who hears her story. Some even say her death inspired the urban legend of the babysitter and the man upstairs. However, it's unlikely that Jeanette's murder directly led to the creepy story. Her murder was far different than the crime depicted in the legend. Even so, Jeanette's death fed into the growing cultural fear. While American society scapegoated babysitters and teenage girls more broadly for countless social issues, Babysitters themselves grew increasingly unsettled. Their jobs weren't just underpaid, they were potentially dangerous. Jeanette Chrisman wasn't the first babysitter to be killed on the job, and she wouldn't be the last. Three years later, in 1953, a 15-year-old girl named Evelyn Hartley disappeared while babysitting, and she was never seen again. Thank you.
Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of our Babysitter's Special. We'll explore the evolution of the babysitter in American culture and try to figure out what happened to Evelyn Hartley. For more information on Jeanette Chrisman, amongst the many sources we used, we found the article, Who Killed Jeanette Chrisman? written by T.J. Graney for the Columbia Daily Tribune, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Karis Allen with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Jerry Courtney Osteen, Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Brian Green, and Cameron Nicod. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, I'm Shelby Scott, host of Mediums, a new Spotify original from Parcast. You can join me Wednesdays as I dive into the world of spiritualism and the women that defined it. We'll explore everything from obvious con artists to 150-year-old mysteries. It'll be a fascinating journey, so be sure to follow my new podcast, Mediums, free and only on Spotify.